when I was nine years old, my mom came to me and said, that's it. I'm done. We're leaving. And what she meant was we were leaving my father. He was and is a very sweet man, but at the time, um, an alcoholic. She was told and therefore believed that she was lucky. Everyone dealt with alcoholism, except all sides of my family were very, very poor, except us. So she convinced herself that she should just be grateful. She just flipped from one day being in the dark side of gratitude and she went to the light side. And when she told me that I didn't cry and I get upset, I said something to her like, what took you so long? You know, at the age of nine. Welcome to the podcast where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and your drive your career forward. I got a good one today, folks. No, actually, I have a great one. My guest today on the podcast is Kat Cole. Kat is a president and chief operating officer at Athletic Greens. And before joining Athletic Greens in 2021, Kat ran an assortment of brands we all know and love like Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's, Moe's, Schlotsky's, McAllister's, and Carvel. And I will ask you, I'm going to ask it now during my intro, which I never do. Are you a fudgy the whale gal? I am more, I respect fudgy and the legacy of fudgy, which is three, almost four generations deep as a 96 year old brand. Uh, but I'm more of a... I was more of a Cinnabon mini bond girl, but as I've gone on my own health journey, I'm but when you have a cheat day, I'm yeah, you always get a cheat day. Um, I am more of a either Auntie Anne's salted pretzel nuggets or mm. a Jamba vanilla blue sky. Not even, a, not even a cookie puss here and there. Mm -mm. All right. And Kat got to start waitressing at Hooters. I've never done the mid-intro the mid -intro question, so that's first. And Kat got to start waitressing at Hooters, Great Wings. And we're going to get into her super inspiring story of rising through the ranks and eventually to become the vice president of Hooters America. She's known for creating insane amounts of growth wherever she goes. And I'm excited to dig in and to have that translate into her newest chapter over at Athletic Greens. So let's get to it. Kat Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, we got the Carvel questions out of the way, and I'm not going to be personally offended. I am... My birthday, Father's Day, it's fudgy. Like I, I there's for me, there's no combination of New York. Oh yeah, born and raised yeah. New Yorker. There's the the combination of the the crunch, the fudge, the chocolate ice cream, the amalgamation, and it's just and the memories. Just, You're eating the memories. I met for forty, almost forty four years eating memories of of fudge. <laughs> So let's get to it. Um, I want to hit the rewind button quickly because I think it's important to tell your story of how you got to where you are today and a painful picture of what you've accomplished. And we talk about humble beginnings growing up and you call this the dark side of humility. Um, if you don't mind as much as you're open to sharing, what, what, what does that mean? I'd love if you could kind of take us back and um, a glimpse into your upbringing. Yeah. So I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm the oldest of three girls. So I have two younger sisters. And when I was nine years old, my mom came to me and said, that's it. I'm done. We're leaving. And what she meant was we were leaving my father. He was and is a very sweet man, but at the time, um, an alcoholic, a terrible husband and father, 
a long list of ways that that impacted our family. Yet my mom for many years, uh, again, I was nine. My sisters were three and six at the time. Little. This was, yeah. And this was not a new phenomenon, the alcoholism, you know, it was ever present in her community and his community and our family. Uh, and for many years she was told and therefore believed that she was lucky. Um, and the reason she was told that she was lucky is that everyone dealt with alcoholism, except all sides of my family were very, very poor, except us. My dad had a white collar job. And so we had a house instead of a trailer um, or on the streets. We had a car. Uh, I even had a playhouse in the backyard. And as you can imagine, to all sides of the family, that looked like richy rich. Luxury. And so, you know, their point of view, my aunts, my cousins, my grandmas said to my mom, we all have to deal with the bad side. At least you get the nice stuff. And so she convinced herself that she should just be grateful. She should be grateful for what she had. She should be thankful that it wasn't worse. And the reality is it could have been worse in many ways. Um, But she just flipped from one day Uh, being in the dark side of gratitude, which is convincing yourself you should be grateful to the tune of convincing yourself you don't deserve better. And she went to the light side. And while I'm grateful that things aren't worse, it doesn't mean that I don't have the right or in some cases the responsibility to make them better. And she became dissatisfied enough, determined enough, even though she didn't have the answers to decide to leave. Again, all sides of family were very poor, so there was nowhere to go. And so she had to figure it out on her own. She had a very low-wage paying hourly job at the time. And so the headline there is there was no external safety net. There was no external financial uh, resource. And we left. Um, and, And when she told me that, I didn't cry and I get upset. I said something to her like, what took you so long? <laughs> you know, at the age of nine. I'm only and, laughing because I read that in the bio, I read that in your biography. I'm like, to have that kind of mindset at nine years old. Right? You know, I think that there's probably kids even younger than me that have even more clarity when you're around it and you're in it. And her fear was, I'm taking my kids away from their father and I'm removing us from our financial security. But the reality is, at least at that point, we didn't really have a father to be taken away from. You know, it, so in it her wasn't mind, missing anything. Yeah, in her mind, the concerns uh, were real and valid. But my reaction was affirmation that she knew the right thing to do all along. We left. She fed us on a food budget of ten dollars a week for three years. She worked three jobs. Like on and on and on, we figured it out. But that is the source of the the concept of the dark side of gratitude. I certainly appreciate you sharing that openness and, and vulnerability. Were there were there moments in there when you look back at it now, Kat, where you're like, the resilience, resourcefulness, that's that's all from mom. Yeah. I got th- I got that shit when I was young. That was embedded into your DNA and into your soul. Were there were there was there ever a need to have a, a strong male figure in your life? Were there friends, uncles, aunts around uh, uncles? Were there anybody that did you yeah. feel like there was a I need mean, for even, that? You know, even balance? my dad, for all his faults, um, had some beautiful characteristics as a, as a male that, that are in me that I still resonate with today. He was very carefree, incredibly loving and social, even more so when he was drunk. Um, 
And, and so there were some really beautiful elements. I would say the other male figures on my dad's side were as bad or worse. He mm. was a little bit of the shining light in a way. Um, Happy drunk. And yeah. Um, and so, but there were others, you know, especially as I started working and leaders, although most of the bosses or managers I had when I was young were women. Interestingly, I started in retail. A majority of those leaders at the time, you know, were female. I worked at Hooters. Many of the managers are female because they work their way up from being a Hooters girl. So I actually only had a handful of male bosses my entire career. Um, and, but yeah, tons of, you know, just incredible people I would meet mentors. Actually, I met a lot of incredible male mentors in my nonprofit work with the Georgia Restaurant Association, the National Restaurant Association, even in the Women's Food Service Forum, I met some of the most incredible um, male leaders who were advocates. They were a minority of the community. Allies. The fact that they were there, you know, is a testament to um, how instrumental they were in the development of, of many people's careers and women's careers. So yeah, I had I had a ton, but most of my, life, my force was from lots of different types of female leaders. So let's, let's, let's talk about those, those early, those early careers. And especially for anybody out there who's in retail or food service, and they may not have a formal education, they may not have a college education. I mean, you started as a waitress, you worked your way up. And from what I read, you were hands on, you would step in when the, when the line cooks were out, the bartender wasn't there. Did that just come naturally to just be like a go getter? I'm going to step in. I'm going to take care of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, upon reflection, because the story played out so interestingly, and I get asked questions, so it's afforded me the opportunity to reflect quite a bit. And upon reflection, there were three, whatever you want to call them, mindsets or characteristics at play Please, that, sure. that led to the jumping in. One is I genuinely wanted to be helpful. I'm a helper. Like someone needs help. Cup filler, <laughs> as my daughter would like to say, cup filler. I'm there. You need help. I'm there. Doesn't matter the job. Doesn't matter the place. And so that's driver number one, likely. Number two is I am super curious to see if I can figure things out. So especially if I am helping someone and it's something I've never done. One, if you're helping someone in need, the bar is pretty low for how good you need to be. And it actually de-risks you jumping in. Like, okay. Yeah. Like, you do a job. Like you, you're a podcaster, right? I've never hosted a podcast. But if you and I were buds and I worked in your studio and something happened and you're like, the show has to go on, we have to record it. I would be like, one, the, do it. the bar is not going to be high for me to be amazing. You're I just going to be okay. happy that someone carries it on. Anytime you want to take over, Kat, the show is yours, please. <laughs> Anytime and, you want to guest host. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, I leave it to the pros. And so... So I, it was actually a quite a safe way to learn new things by jumping in and helping people. But I was curious, can I fry those chicken wings? Uh, and the joke is when they float, they're done. It's actually true. Um, you know, can I, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but can I do it? So there was curiosity, a bit of proving it to myself is driver number two and driver number three, at least in those situations is I was selfish because the more shifts I could work, the more access to income I had, mm -hmm. which more money I could make. So there was an altruistic element. There was a self-serving element. And then there was just this growth 
curiosity element. And, and then, yeah, I went back and helped the cooks cook and then I could work with kitchen chef and I could train kitchen employees. And when the manager needed help, I helped them close a shift and then I could be a shift leader. And the same thing happened with the bartender and the host. And then before so, I knew, knew it, I knew how to run a restaurant. That so wasn't that, my goal. It was the outcome. Right. But so now, now you're in a management role. You are now managing your first restaurant. What, Kat, what was one of those first early lessons learned the hard way, as I like to say? Maybe maybe a misconception about management. Maybe like how you thought you should you should lead and coach people, and you were freaking dead wrong or off. You know, I think what was interesting is I never moved permanently into the store manager role. I was always toggling between Hooters girl, bartender, cook, and manager. And there's something until I moved into the corporate office, and there is something interesting when you have to continue to be a peer and a partner of all these roles. It's not like you're ascending into management and you're like on high and now I've got to make this. So it gave me an unfair advantage as a manager because I could relate and I didn't get too big for my britches because I was about to be in the, the other britches at the same time. It made it harder. It made it harder to have that line of respect. It made it harder to have that, like, who are you to tell me what to do? Like, you're. But you, you also know. earned it. You also paid your dues. You were in the well, kitchen. Yeah. You were cleaning up. I'm sure you were mopping shit. You were dealing with asshole customers. You were in it. You were kicking people out. You were yeah. getting wings done. You were doing. You were doing all that stuff there. Yeah. So you well, earned I mean, it, right? Humans, humans are still going to human. Does just because you earned it so, doesn't mean everybody appreciates that you earned it. And so that might be the lesson is that when you have the responsibility of something, not everyone is going to believe you need to be there or, you know, some people start out giving you hundred percent respect and then it's yours to lose. Mm. Others um. are on the other side, which is like, earn it, prove it all the way along the way. And when you run a restaurant and there's 20 people on a shift, statistically speaking, there's a good mix of different types of people. So, especially in the, especially in the service industry, yeah. that attracts a wide range of personalities, characters, backgrounds. You know, I, but even even in in corporate, corporate America, America, of course, like, assholes everywhere. Just, it really helps. It helped me build the muscle, and the part that was harder is that different people need to be led differently. There are some universal truths of management and leadership. And then there are other things that are variable based on the tenure, the personality, Mm -hmm. the environment, the dynamic, the conditions. And so I just learned a lot of tough leadership lessons at an insanely young age. I was 18 when this was happening. Um, Yeah. And then I started traveling around the world, opening franchises when I was 19. Even we're a gonna, different level of responsibility. We're going to get to that in a second, but complete side note before I forget: Are you watching? Have you watched The Bear on Hulu FX? The uh, Bear, a couple, a couple episodes. Right, so you get the the sense of the of the food. Okay, so we talked about this concept of promoting from within, right? And you literally started at the bottom at Hooters, and now you're, you're you get called. What's the story? You get called to open up uh, the first restaurant Hooters in Australia. Mm-hmm. Was there a cultural how, how did you start to deal with the the cultural listen hooters back then we're not going to date put a date on it right there there's a reputation there's a brand there's a brand image you're going into different countries different uh cultural um assimilation pros cons going on over there what was it like to to open up from a cultural perspective in a new country i'm sure you did some research on it but like was it welcome with open arms what was that like 
it was a mixed bag. There were lovers and there were haters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then people in between, it was so fun. I mean, it was, um, one, a bit of a height of the fever around the brand. And mm-hmm. so while it was polarizing and controversial in some ways, it was also really exciting and interesting to a lot of people. And so that was really fun being at the center of that intrigue and knowing the truth of the inside versus what different people may perceive from the outside. Then, you know, the countries varied. Um, in Australia, if you think about Sydney, um, Woolloomooloo, the area where we opened at the time, lots of Navy, military, lots of sports restaurants. So it right. kind of fit right in. You had a lot of rugby players coming in. You had a lot right. of families. So, so there was a good fit. There was a good cultural was a brand fit. fit. Oh, it was a great fit. Um, and there were still a lot of things that were different. Just because they speak English doesn't mean it's this perfect translation. Some of the menu um, items might have been different that didn't translate. Menu right? items, music, bar, sports, even the uniforms a little different. And But then, you know, go to the second uh, franchise location I opened. So after I got back from Sydney, I was asked to go to Mexico and open the first one ever in Central America. And we had a full bar. We had liquor. And for anyone who doesn't know, for most of Hooters' existence, it was only beer and wine. And, uh, which made it, people thought of it as this, like, you know, people are going there getting wasted. I mean, they did, but it was beer as pitchers of beer. Right. I have a full bar now. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be a part of something very cool and bringing that to the brand and like modernizing the brand in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just beer and wine it's globally sports bar. Yeah. and then sports bar. And so then we go to Mexico and people are having sangrita with lunch and I, we've got to train mm-hmm. people on co- making cocktails and, because that's normal. It was that normal. Fla- that, that flavor profile between spicy hot wings and it works. <laughs> Depends what you're pairing it with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people coming in watching soccer matches, which is a very different level of energy or football, a very different level of energy than most American sports mm-hmm. watching. And it was downtown and um, in Insurgentes in Zona Rosa in Mexico City. And there was just this like it was different. It was very different. And and there's a different culture around women in uh in in mexico and in central american cultures and in some ways more more loving and and um paternal maternal and connected and in other ways more sexualized right so you had some very different dynamics at play a little more like machismo a little more so there were different dynamics to play and then when i launched the first one in south america which was in buenos aires whoo that one more I mean, we just missed the mark on menu. So, yeah, so let's talk about that, right? Like understanding the cultural differences too, especially when it comes to religious. Like, listen, countries have their vices. Countries have their certain things. But when you start to play with religion being encapsulating of a whole country and the perception of brands and restaurants, was I mean, I'm sure the brand – I mean, correct me if I'm on this – brand research, brand insights and everything. Did they just say fuck it or like was like shit, we went in here and we missed the mark? Like, how would you guys miss the mark? I mean, there was research, but it wasn't – that sophisticated and we're, we were a franchise model. So you're relying on the local owner correct? to have the knowledge, to make the interpretation, to bridge the gap, but you don't get everything right. And, and of course, being a brand that was go- new to going into new countries, the brand was likely overprotective of some things like menu items, like, no, this is a Hooters menu item. And we have to have exactly this because that's the brand. And you had the franchisees wanting to change everything. And somewhere in the middle is the right answer. 
Um, but when we got down there to open that restaurant and I was leading that opening, so I was already now leading, I was 19 or just turned 20. And one of the, you know, I'd done all these openings in different countries, four or five, a couple in the U S and, um, and it was a mess. It was very, very difficult. The, the equipment was not appropriate for the food standards there. We had a shitty ribeye flat, like rib, ribeye steak that you grilled on a flat top in order to make a just sandwich. Off. And this is the beef capital of the world. And yeah. when they saw the recipe to put. Like, what are you doing to this meat? Flat top, not over fire. What are you doing to this meat? Sacrilegious. Yeah, not only what the towel. <laughs> yeah, not only what are you doing to this meat, but what is, this isn't meat, right? Like this is the beef capital of the world. And. So real time, we had to figure out, like, we need to get in a flame broiler. We need to improve the steak selection and making changes. And I was drawing new plate setups and faxing it to the corporate office to get them to approve and trying to call and then just being a a maverick with the franchisee and changing stuff and then hoping I I wasn't going to get fired when somebody showed up to the store. And it was wild. It was so much fun. It was incredible learning. And it was very hard. I was in tears every night just from exhaustion just the stress of the changes imagine. pivoting and but it was also magical hey everybody i want to talk about a product and platform that i absolutely love and our latest sponsor interseller the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data automating the email and follow-up process and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. And as I'm telling the Cat Cole story here, these threads that everyone listening there, the, the, the resiliency, the resourcefulness, Cinnabon comes knocking. Did they find you? Did you find them? Was that a talk? Let's talk because this show is deeply rooted in the career journey too. Talk about that. Let's let's talk about it. Like, did they come to you? Were you recruited? How did that work? So, like many things, there were breadcrumbs along the way in a journey that led to a moment. And if you just talk about the moment, the recruitment, it it seems like, oh, well, this magic just happens to her out of nowhere. And the the roots of this are I uh, while I was at Hooters, and I was there for just under fifteen years. And from 96 to 2010, and I was vice president for six years, uh, those last six years of the company, I became vice president when I was 26 years old Awesome. and one of the VPs of the company. And I was overseeing training and development. And then that evolved over time. And, um, so one, I built a reputation in the industry. And so typically leaders who have a positive reputation doing good things in business, get recruited. And I was getting recruited, but nothing was super interesting, uh, because Hooters, what, what was unique about it outside of the obvious, what's not obvious about how it was unique is it was privately owned, fully vertically integrated. We had manufacturing supply chain and airline casinos. We owned our own food distribution. Like I had multiple lifetimes of careers in that company. It was very hard for another company to rival the learning and the opportunities that I had there. That's why I stayed. So one of the many reasons I stayed as long as I did. And, um, and it's not like there were Wharton MBAs beating down the door to go work at Hooters. So people on the inside got the opportunities like promote me. from within, promote from within and, many others. Um, and I had incredible leaders there. And, 
Um, and so in addition to my reputation in the industry, I volunteered for restaurant associations. And as I mentioned, the women's food service NRA. Mm-hmm. for people and, um, and the, the result of that is you build networks outside of your company, which allowed people to see me as an industry leader, not just as somebody who worked at Hooters on their resume. Thought you were a thought leader. Yeah. And so as a result, visibility, brand, early brand building, personal yeah. brand building. And as a result, I started getting recruited and um, by people I worked on projects with, not just mm-hmm. somebody from the outside. So we became friendly. We had dinners, we had lunches. And they knew you, you knew them. You knew what they were working on. You knew about their yeah. brand. So familiarity. It was conversations. It was conversations leading up to it. And then I got a phone call and uh, from someone at Rourke Capital and Focus Brands, the parent company of Cinnabon at the time, still today. And they said, we'd like you to consider interviewing for the president of, uh, or actually, no. First, I had the opportunity to go work in private equity in at Rourke. And this leader, um, Steve, who was the outgoing CEO of Focus Brands and incoming executive at Rourke, the private equity firm, reached out to me from this network of food service and franchise volunteering and said, um, you know, I'm building out a franchise practice at Rourke, would love to talk to you about this role. And so I went deep down the interview process for that role um, and was super excited about it. I mean, for a girl who grew up child of a single parent, alcoholic father, worked at Hooters her whole life, private equity is pretty fancy. And, um, and I thought Steve was an amazing human. And so the idea of working with him, the idea of making this leap was incredibly enticing. And then the day he called me to offer me the job uh, was the exact same day, just an hour or two before that we found out we had to sell Hooters. We, um, the CEO had died unexpectedly and the sun had taken over. uh, Yeah. The, uh, the estate did not get settled. Alignment of the universe. The judge ruled we had to liquidate the most valuable asset in the estate, which was Hooters of America. And we had like, I don't remember, but 90 days for a reasonable commercial effort. And, um, so we had to sell the company. And I said to Steve, when he called, I'm like, I think this sucks and I can't believe I'm saying it and there's no good time to leave, but this is a terrible time to leave. And I can't do that. Oh my God. And I am so bummed. And, but you know, you do the right thing for the right reasons and it pays back in dividends. And to your point over time, I didn't realize it at the time, but certainly it sent the message that if I'm in a company and I have an owner's mindset, I'm not going to leave them in a lurch in their time of need. And, um, I stayed. And several months later, he called back and said, look, I know you can't come now for this role, but we, we're on a flexible timeline, but we're going to be interviewing for a president of Cinnabon in the portfolio. I think you should interview for it. And I went to the CEO of Hooters and said, look, I know we're in this transaction. Um, I'm probably not going to get this job given who I've else I've heard is in the running, but I should, I think I should interview. And it's Kobe time was for you to look for yourself right now. Yeah. And Kobe was fantastic. The son, the CEO of Hooters, he's like, but you've given them your all cat. You've given them your all, right? Like you've given it, like you got them to like, you, you stayed when you were liquidating. Like, it's like, all right, now it's, now it's time to look out for number one. And, and hopefully they respected that and they did. And they got you where you got. He was amazing. He's like, look, I don't want to tell anyone because this is still a delicate time in the company. Um, but I support you just 
help me get this deal closed. And I promised him, I will not leave until get we get a line. offer on the company. And as luck would have it, I was offered the role as president of Cinnabon. And I may get my exact dates wrong, it gets fuzzy, but April or May of 2010. And I did not start until October of 2010. They held the job for me five, six months um, in order for me to honor that commitment. So you could close up shop there. So there's a question that's just been for years. I've been thinking about this one. When I go into the mall, are they releasing the smells of Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's? Like, uh, like are they blowing it with fans to drive, to drive the traffic to it's, it's, I've never smoked crack in my life. And I think that's the closest thing to I'm ever going to smoke crack in my life is going. Sorry, I don't mean to make a drug reference, but it's like this smell is just like every fiber of my body feels those two unique smells. Yeah. And lined with the brands. It's powerful. Um, I mean, (laughs) one, the aroma is coming from the fact that in both brands, the ovens are out front. So think about when you open up an oven in your house and you're baking cookies, right? You smell Mm. it. And that's just one time opening it. Think about if you're just all day baking fresh. That's what the aroma is from. Um, I mean, there are vents, of course, but we don't have to have hoods in those right. locations. It's, it's not a, flame. most of them. And so um, that, mm, you know, that is pretty powerful. The, the olfactory work? senses, the connection between the nose and oh. the brain, the memories of fresh baked grandma's house, like anything is really, <laughs> really overwhelming. And okay. Fact, so, so dealer's choice. You could only eat one. For the rest of your life, is it the bun or the pretzel? Mm. I mean, uh, Sophie's okay, choice right I now. Mean, as someone who built <laughs> these two beloved brands for many years, <laughs> I refuse to choose. Uh, I, I'm going to let you recuse yourself from, from from this one here. So, different company, different company, different company that you're you're going into, different culture, different everything. Was that hard for you to assimilate into a new culture? Like, was it hard for you to balance out? All right, I'm a leader. How much am I going to balance listening first versus taking action and kind of putting my signature and stamp on this new organization? I I mean, I've learned, at least for me, I can't have a plan like that. It is relative to the needs of the company, the person, the moment, and fine-tuning these four mindsets humility, curiosity, courage, and confidence, and learning how to be self-aware and be aware of others, and then turn the volume up or down on those mindsets or characteristics. And um, so it's quite situational. There are times to shut up and listen, and there are times to ask others to do that. And there are times to be iterative, based on what you hear and then making decisions and then learn more. And it's just like, oops. Uh, but it's, it's based on the situation. I didn't get in my head about it. Um, I knew I was there to lead. The business was in a lot of trouble. Cinnabon, you know, the business based in malls and airports had just gone through the great recession and was still on the tail end of it. And there were real top line pressures and declining profitability and defaults. Serious business issues that needed to be addressed. I mean, the brand was beloved and the product was as disturbingly delicious and authentic as it was the day it was invented. But the business model was foobar. So, but you, you did, that was needed. 
but you you brought such innovation, like taking these ideas from tech, like hackathons and all these kind of outside the box. I mean, how is that received from a corporate level, and how is that received from a from a customer level? When you came outside the box here, with like, hey, this shit's working with other places. Why not we give it a try here? I mean, most people loved it eventually, um, but the reality is, all the innovative ideas came from somewhere or someone or something already sprouting in the company. There were very the few seeds were planted. There were very few things that were like Kat's brilliant idea and no one was doing any version of it. And then I had to start it, not even zero, but negative one. Mm. Most things were an insight from an existing stakeholder that needed to be nurtured and fostered and accelerated and expanded and engaging pe- everything from going into growth. There were already grocery products. That wasn't my brilliant it wasn't retail. first time, but I rallied people around it and figured out how a way to build a truly multi-channel brand mindset across the divisions of the company and the franchisees and the stakeholders and build an innovation and commercialization engine that made shit happen at scale. And we could be small and innovative and the brand advocates, but we also built a team that knew how to work with the giants of and the to world. Move, and to move. Catalogs. To move um, but it wasn't just those channel innovations. There were things we did in the franchise business from third-party delivery to technology, to digital menu boards, to smaller portions. I mean, it all came from seeing inspiration somewhere and then saying, wow, is that relevant to us? If it is relevant, it. relevant now, if it's relevant now, is it something the business and the customer can value, handle, and appreciate? And then, you know, where does it sit in the priorities of the operational plan? And and then remembering that a business can only change at the speed that customers and employees can believe and that the business can handle. And handle means financially handle, operationally execute. And so I wanted to go way faster. I was about to say, how do you control the throttle as a leader? Like, how do you, like, like watch, you're watching the engine, you know, you're hitting the red, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's going in the red, but you want to push your team, but not too much. Like that's, that's one of the hardest parts about leadership is how hard to push your team, moving things forward without burning them out and without crossing the line. My philosophy was the wheels should shake, not can shake, should Mm -hmm. shake, but they should not come off, right? The wheels should shake, but they should not come off. If we're a car, and we're all in this car and we're pushing it and we're going fast and we're going over uncharted territory. The wheels should shake. That means we're going somewhere new, somewhere unpaved where we're, you know, we're going, but it, they should not come off. Right. We shouldn't I like, be like this. I like this analogy. Kat. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so that means ultimately the mindset of the leader, at least for me is about execution. Ideas are a dime a dozen. It's execution and, and ideas all day long, but if you're not making shit happen, you're not doing yeah. anything. And at the same time, people are capable of far more than they know. And so there is some sweet spot of pushing people beyond what they would do on their own accord and not doing it so much because everyone has a different speed and a different capability. And when you're managing larger organizations, it's like layers and teams of people. So you've got to have a deep appreciation for how shit works. Um, so there's a sweet spot there that you find the only, sweet spot. You can only navigate it if you stay close to the right. action. If you get too removed, you'll make errors to one extreme or the other. Too slow, too safe, too fast, too sloppy. 
That's This is the good stuff, people, everyone listening out there. So I got to ask you about hiring, and I love to talk to senior leaders, experienced leaders like yourself. <clears throat> At this stage, when you're interviewing somebody, we're going to assume that they have the skill sets that they need for that role. So you're talking to them about character, personality, values. What are some of Cat Cole's kind of secret go-to questions and your kind of mindset and process to suss out someone is pretty relatively quickly? Like maybe you have one call, maybe you have two calls, depending on the level. But how do you, how do you, how do you get there from a decision point? Uh, it, I don't necessarily have like secret questions, but it depends on where someone is in the interview process. You know, if I'm, or typically I'm now in my role, I'm one of the last right. legs. Um, so the you question know. I used to ask when I was, um, an earlier part of an interview panel or a more junior hiring manager are very, very mm -hmm. different than the questions I ask now. So what are you but asking now? Now I focus more on culture. And so I'm assuming if they've gotten to me that they, they can do the job, the technical test. Right. Um, and I'll still ask my own questions, of course, on that. I don't abdicate that responsibility to others, but the, the percentage of the time where I focus my energy is, um, is on culture, cultural elements. Um, how have they handled adversity? Tell me about a time when Conflict, you, know, you yeah. made a mistake and what happened and how did it happen? And what would you do differently? You know, if you would go back, if I were to ask your most intimate friend or partner, the characteristic they love about you and the characteristic that drives them crazy about you, you know, what would they say? Um, and then one thing that I find quite interesting is one, when someone gets to me, I'm also typically at the point of selling and telling as well, right? Like I tell it's people. A sales, the, 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 the employer is also selling on the candidate. Let's okay. remember that. The interview is a two-way street, people. Yep. And, uh, and so I, again, if they get to me and if they're interviewing with me, they're likely some version of a leader or senior role. Um I also want to tell them about the challenges in the company almost to a more negative degree than is reality. I'd like someone to think about eyes wide open, come in, understand, like almost talk them out of it and see what they <laughs> Yeah. Like here's, this yeah. is Here, every company has its mess. Like here's our shit. Yeah. Everybody's got it. And so I talk about it quite openly and like to hear their questions or reactions. But one question that I'm surprised sometimes even from senior leaders that doesn't go the way I would think or hope is I ask people, look, I'm leaving a little bit of time. What questions do you have for me? And sometimes it is crickets and, and either they're nervous, you know, and it, you know, I always give people that grace, but it does make me wonder, you know, do you have standards and, or have you gotten them all answered maybe by the time you get to me? And, is it a, just a lack of curiosity? How, That's you know, a flag so that, for me. That, it, and because part of why I don't just ask the question to see if people have questions. I like to learn how people think. I want to know their thought process. process. I want to mm -hmm. if they ask a question that isn't clear why they're asking, I'll say, can you tell me more about, you know, why that's on your mind? I'd love to know. Like it helps me interview the candidate and mm -hmm. what they will think about what they will be like. To, so it's fascinating when people are like, also, no. you might manage them. No, yeah. I don't. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You're like, really? Hey, 
All right. Uh, that's 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 a flag for me. It's so, not a killer, you know. It's it's very situational, but I am surprised at the times where I believe someone should have questions or could have questions, and and they don't. So, Kat, we we, we only have a few minutes left, so I really want to make sure that I I hit home a couple of things here. Okay, you're in this pretty awesome corporate job, revitalizing these brands, bringing them to life, uh, infusing new ideas. Athletic Greens, where does this come from? So I was at Focus in total for almost exactly 10 years. And in that time, I was president of Cinnabon for a handful of years and then hired a successor there and then took on uh, the role of group president of the parent company managing the licensing and e-commerce and CPG division, which is what bridged me to CPG. So mm-hmm. this is the legs to CPG AG. into DTC. Um, mm-hmm. And then I became president and COO of the parent company. So I was managing presidents of other brands, small ones, big ones. We grew by acquisition. So we not only grew the brands we had, we acquired brands like McAllister's, Jamba Juice, and Auntie Anne's while I was there and ran a big- God bless Auntie Anne's. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Ran a big, you know, the business was quite global, um, 70 plus countries at its peak. And at the same time, what I was doing very quietly that many people didn't know because I just didn't put it on blast- is for a for about a decade, I had become an angel investor in early stage businesses. I started getting connected to founder led startups. Mm-hmm. That's the next path to AG. I also got on my own personal health journey. Um, I had my first child at thirty nine. I had my second child at forty one. I had a couple miscarriages before and in between, and even before mm-hmm. that, I was into health and wellness, um, and I was. So delighted when the opportunity came for us to buy Jamba Juice and take it private and turn it into more of the still fun and delicious, but more of the wellness company it should be with lower sugar, more plant-based options. The quality. Yeah. The quality. And, um, and so I just because I was the president of Cinnabon, some people think, well, you can't be that into health and wellness, but I was. And we had other brands like Moe's Southwest Grill and McAllister's that we leaned into keto and paleo. And, um, and so there are lots of examples of how even my oversight of consumer businesses expanded to more health conscious brands, but then quietly the story was going that way. The thread, yeah, the momentum was pushing in this yeah. direction. Um, and then I was my, my personal capital in time was going into mostly either health tech, better for you, food and beverage, CPG, SMB tech, um, or omni-channel retail businesses. And I, was on the board of Milk Bar and Slice, again, founder-led growth stage businesses. And by the time I get to 2021 and I take off a year, I'm like, I've been at Focus for 10 years. It's time to go. It took us about advise other businesses. One of the people who reached out to me to advise them was Chris Ashenden, founder and CEO of, of AG, um, the maker of AG1, the all-in-one foundational nutrition supplement that basically nourishes all the body systems. It's a multi, it replaces a multivitamin, a probiotic, the green, it's like all in one, one step, powder, water, shake, Boom. feel mad, feel amazing. Link uh, it up. Yeah. So good. Um, <laughs> uh, drink AG slash cat gets you a deal. Um, and, and so when he called and asked me to advise him to have a conversation, I was already a customer. My husband's an ultra endurance athlete. I've tried it before. I was Being a, a customer and advocate of a company you're going Huge. to work for, there's nothing better. Huge. And so we started weekly calls and 
at first I was like, ah, this company is a little small, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to advise it. And then I realized one, it's bigger than I thought. Um, we're just very secretive about our numbers. So most people don't know how big the business is. And, um, and I, the, the people like working with Chris, he's so humble yet so mission driven. And it, it quickly changed from why would I jump from these billion dollar brands to something small to I'd be crazy not to be all in on this business with a product that I love, with people that inspire me, with a mission that is aligned with mine. I want to live long and strong. I'm one of these people that is all into longevity and want to do everything I can, but I'm also um, a busy mom of two kids now under six and a company that provides a really healthy, crazy high quality and simple solution Boom. is changing lives. It's changing lives. And changing lives. this is my way to change the world very literally. And so when he said, come on board and help me build this, took me a couple Makes months. Um, by October of 21, I was all in president, COO, board member. It'll be and- two years coming up. It's already been two years since I've been advising, but two years in this role coming up. There we go. I get to use my button there. It's amazing. It's a very it. special, special product so, and company. So let's let's bring it home here. A couple of quick questions to wrap this up, Kat, because I know you got to go in a minute. Um, biggest challenge right now in front of you as a leader of Athletic Greens? We're a global, fully remote company. We've never had a headquarters in 12 years. And so maintaining our incredible growth in, in customers and in revenue and in people while building culture in a fully remote company, I like to say, I wouldn't do it any other way. Like this works for us. We know what we're doing, but we do pay a remote tax. And so what's that tax? um, Everything people would think, right. You're not in the same room. And so so it does matter, right? So the, so the the thread out there and the thought is that like a remote hundred percent works all the time. That's not always true. There's nuances and there's things that are missing of that human connection. None of the models are complete. If you force people to be there all the time, you don't get the best talent. You don't get the flexibility the modern world demands. If you're completely separate, we get together quite a bit um, with our leadership teams at AG, but even that requires travel. And that's fun sometimes, but that can also have its own tax. And it's less about remote and more that we're global. We're on every time zone. And so coordinating that Following the sun takes a level of intentionality and precision and technological enablement. Made in New Zealand. Made in New Zealand, blended in New Zealand and blended in the U.S. We've got both and um, it's wild. And so that just in talent, right? Like it's all about the who and and people. That's my world. I get it. About the who and it's all about the who. Just because someone was a great fit when we were doing fifty million doesn't mean they were the best fit at two hundred million and so on and so on and so on. I absolutely love it. So let, let's bring it home here, Kat. I mean, you've told the AG story a million times. I really love our conversation today because we talked about your career journey. Hopefully, you were able to talk about some things. Maybe you didn't go that deep on on other shows, and hopefully, my audience who does not know you now they know you a bit. Kat, what is the single greatest piece of advice you ever received that you take action on daily? It could be a mantra, something you wake up saying to get you going and moving and motivated. It's my pinned tweet. Do we still call them tweets now that it's X? I don't know. My, my something. Whatever the it's hell you want to call it. It's in that place. It's pinned. Um, and it is a Must version of what my mom used to put on my birthday cards, which is don't forget where you came from, but don't you dare ever let it solely define you. And I, it's about reinvention. It's about evolution. And and I, I now yeah. add, 
our truth is in our roots, but our past should not be our anchor. So whether it's my personal reinvention, like I worked at Hooters and that didn't mean that I, I felt I couldn't be an advocate for women. And I was, and I was the chair of the board of the women's food service forum. I was the president of Cinnabon, but mm -hmm. now I run one of the fastest growing nutrition companies in the world. Those things are not in conflict, right? I'm a person on a journey and I have permission to change. You have permission to change. Sometimes you have a responsibility to change uh, like my mom's story. And so I put in practices in my life that allow me to honor that mantra. I have check-ins with my husband and with my direct reports. And we ask the same six questions every month. I practice something called the hotshot rule every Sunday where I envision someone I admire in my role. I ask what's one thing they do differently to make the business better. I take action on that thing in 24 hours and I call my team. And it's so about good. driving constant growth and, uh, and reinvention. I absolutely love it. Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball question in there. Um, planning to get back to Burning Man one of these days? I leave in three days. <laughs> there it is. And Chris and I have been talking. Uh, I'm Burning Man adjacent. Uh, Chris and I are planning next year to go for the first time uh, together. And we'll talk about that offline. But last but not least, Cat Cole, last but not least, you look back on your life. You look back on this journey. And you think about those times when you were young and you were at rock bottom. And you had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity and drive you forward. And you sit here today, gratitude, deep, real, true, freaking gratitude, respect, admiration for this family life career that you built, empowering others to have careers, being a strong advocate for women and leadership. Kat Cole, what is your compass? What is your focus? What is your North Star in life? My North Star is I help people realize they're capable of more than they know. That's it. And I do it in different ways. Sometimes I do it by being a franchisor. Sometimes I do it by being a mom or a friend. Sometimes I do it by hiring someone and giving them a shot. Sometimes I do it by firing someone and helping them find their next thing. It's That's been my why for as long as I can remember thinking about my purpose or my why. And there it is, folks. Kat Cole, hang with me for a moment here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time, your wisdom, your vulnerability, and sharing with my audience. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And for everyone out there, you can follow Kat at Kat Cole on Instagram, Kat Cole ATL in the Hotlanta. Uh, company page, drinkag1.com backslash Kat or Kat backslash Kat in there. I'll link it up in the comments. You know where to find her. Kat, thank you so much. And everyone out there, if this show meant something to you, leave a review rating. It goes a long way. Sharing means caring. Remember, find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on the social media channels. You know what they are. Take care of each other. Be good to yourself. Be better to others. And catch us next week another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.